Growing up, I've never been told that uh, I can't do something. My grandmother was a wool classer when women weren't allowed in the shearing shed. So it's never been something that I've been told that I can't do. Certainly for me, because I don't know any different, it, it kind of comes quite naturally. Welcome friends to this edition of Take Me to the River, the podcast where we talk to interesting and fascinating people who care about their rivers. Today I'm sitting next to the Wallandilly River with Felicity Wheelwright on a beautiful property called Roslyn Estate. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country we're sitting on today and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. So today we're at this beautiful, beautiful property and we're looking at the Wallandilly River, which is about to be fenced out as part of one of our Rivers of Carbon source water projects. Felicity has been farming here for the last few years as a manager, and she's taken over from her father and her grandfather. So we're going to hear a bit more about what has motivated her to do this and how she's come to be here. So Felicity, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for coming out. Oh, it's been a pleasure. We've had a, an interesting drive across the paddocks. I actually got to put my car into four-wheel drive, which was really quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so Felicity, tell me how you came to be here. Yeah, so uh, I'm a fourth generation on Roslyn Estate. My great-grandfather bought this property back in the 1930s and after his purchase, he essentially gave it to his daughter who was my grandmother and they made this property my grandfather and grandmother made this property their family farm where my father was brought up he took over the farm uh, when he was 25 and he's since run it for the last 50 years and now I'm taking it over from him I started the money taking over the management process back in 2020 I'm very lucky that he doesn't want to retire he still wants to be part of the operation uh, which is great for me. But yeah, it's, it's been a lifelong dream of mine to take over the property and something that's finally come to fruition. Wow, what a fabulous story. That's just so amazing. So as you drive through the paddocks then, and view, you know, listeners, that it really is a stunning property, you can see rows of pine trees and then all this native vegetation in different age classes, really. So who drove that? Who drove those changes to the property? So the property when uh, my great-grandfather purchased it was essentially just bare land. And obviously we're in Roslyn, which is a very windy and very cold area in the wintertime. Uh, and so you, you will see that the initial plantings were all pine trees, obviously for their um, fast growth, they gave shelter very quickly to, to the livestock. But essentially, all the, all the generations have had a part in regenerating the landscape here. Certainly in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, when we had those horrific droughts, that was a big catalyst for us to really kind of change the way that we were managing the property uh, and really look at how we could regenerate the landscape better um, help with our management and grazing practices and so there were some big land care projects that were put into place. We've planted 17 kilometres of uh, native tree corridors. Uh, each of those corridors are five lines across so they're quite big corridors but they have provided amazing shelter, amazing native corridors for you know native animals to get through but also great biodiversity for the landscape. 
Oh, and we'll provide some photos along with the photo story so that you, so that you know, the people listening can actually see these places. It's just such a joy. And as you drive through the paddocks, you see the cattle, you see the sheep, just hunk it in under there. There's a little bit of a breeze here today. So when you talk about regenerative farming, what does that actually mean? Like it seems counterintuitive in drought to plant trees. <laughs> well, it does, but I think I've been fortunate that given that we've been planting trees essentially since I was a child and I've seen the benefits, uh, they far outweigh the time that's spent in terms of putting them in or the capital. Not that I don't think the, 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 the capital putting them in actually isn't that great compared to the benefits that you get out of it. You know, trees have great restorative benefits, not just for you know, the, the, the native landscape and the biodiversity, but also for our pastures. They provide protection to our pastures. So our pastures are actually better off because of the trees that we've planted. Mm. So is that because the trees provide shelter for the grass just as much as the cattle or the sheep? Yeah, exactly. So you will see in areas where we don't have as many trees or you're when you're driving down one of the tree corridors, you'll see that the, tree, the pastures go right up to the edge of those corridors and it's quite green. So the other thing that they're offering is different my, microbiology in the soils, which will obviously also help with um, pastures. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, when we fence off the river, which we'll come to next, we'll get an even bigger bang for the buck, if you like, because of the extra moisture. But I'm interested before we go there, what were you doing before you were farming? So, as I said, you know, I've wanted to take over the farm since I was eight years old. So that's always kind of been the focus. And Dad's obviously been, just because of the droughts and things, been a little bit hesitant um, to let me have, have it, but has never discouraged me, but has also always encouraged me to get off farm experience. So I did that through a Bachelor of Business Agricultural Commerce and a applied finance, postgraduate in applied finance. And I've, so I've worked in banking, agricultural banking for the last 16, 17 years, uh, mainly with Rabobank, but also with ANZ and based both I used to be in the front office, so looking after farmers themselves, but also larger medium corporate enterprises such as abattoirs and wineries. And then I've also gone into the process improvement side of businesses. So really essentially internal consulting within the business to look at how we can improve our practices, make make the business more efficient. And all of that experience that I've received um, is only coming to, back to help with managing a property. And it's been great because it, I've not only learnt from other farmers, but I also understand how the supply chains work. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were going through abattoirs, wineries, um, farmers, that must have given you such an insight into the stresses, but also the opportunities that exist in farming. So you came in pretty wide-eyed. I did. You know, obviously I've got lots of grand ideas, but I think the other thing that I'm really fortunate is that both my grandfather and father were very open to change. So they're not farmers that have always done things the same way. They they do look at how they can improve their practices and, and make positive change. Uh, and so I guess I've come in with that mindset um, already mm. and I've learnt... You know, we've holistically managed this property since the 90s. So, you know, we've got 30 years of holistic management. And obviously, like with anything that you take on, 
you're always going to try and perfect it. You're never going to get there, but you, you know, you're always improving how you do it. And so holistic, does that mean sort of more working with nature, with the seasons, with, you know, understanding animal uh, metabolism, although is, is that what holistic means? What does it mean to you? Uh, holistic management means to me is looking at the, the whole business as a whole as opposed to each individual function and seeing how each of those functions work together uh, to meet the goals that we want. And that could be goals around our lifestyle. It could be goals around improving the biodiversity on the property. It could be the way that we want to sustain this property for future generations. But I think holistic management looks at the whole looks at the whole profitability of the business. Are you profitable not just from a dollar sense, but from a growing grass sense and from a lifestyle sense? Yeah, I did some work with wool growers many years ago now and we came up with profit not just being about money. It's actually about the feeling, the aesthetics, the um, happiness of your animals, although to some people that might sound funny, but it actually really matters when, pe- when animals aren't stressed and are actually happy in their environment. So what are some of your grand ideas? I'd love to know what they are. <laughs> oh, more just looking at ways that we can introduce new, I guess, enterprises into the mix that are going to complement the ones that we already have. So we obviously currently run sheep and fine wool, and obviously I'm pretty passionate about the wool side of things. I think it's an amazing natural product. I think everyone should be wearing it. And we've got a great sock place in Crookwell. Just we shout do. out to them. We, we are going to go via the Crookwell sock yeah. shop. Yeah, yeah, we have to. Um, and so some of our wool actually goes into their socks. But I think for us, you know, very interested in how we can utilise chickens in the operation to help with managing, I guess, not only the transfer of uh, dung across a paddock once we've grazed it heavily with cattle or sheep, but also the management of parasites and things through uh, chickens. I mean, we love the idea of having ducks as well. Also, obviously, especially in wetter times, managing the more parasitics that grow in the water areas, I guess. So fluke obviously is one of those. But how we can use more natural, I guess, practices to help get rid of some of the costs within the business. So obviously parasitic management is a huge cost to any enterprise and certainly in the last year when we've had such a wet winter. So our rolling average rainfall was double what it used to be up until a couple of months ago. Obviously it's dried off a bit now. So looking at ways that we can do that better to improve our bottom line from a profitability perspective but also just to improve improve the landscape. I've definitely heard about the chooks and, you know, moving them around the paddocks. I hadn't thought about the ducks and liver fluke, but that Mm. makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because they hang out in the wetter areas. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it's not something that I know that's proven, but we're, we're keen to trial it out. But as with all these things, you've got lots of grand ideas and they, you know, it's going to take a while to get them all into place. You've got to have ideas. Though, you do. You know, ideas are great. So so let's talk about the idea here. We're looking out, um, and you're saying we're only a couple of kilometres from the headwaters of the Wallandilly River. Yeah, that's right. And the Wallandilly runs throughout this catchment. It's various sizes. We are particularly interested in it from a rivers of carbon perspective because, believe it or not, this water will eventually end up in Sydney. Exactly. And uh, Water New South Wales through the Source Water Project is funding, um, providing assistance to Felicity to fence this out. So tell me a bit more about what we're going to do here because I can see some native grasses, I can see some wonderful aquatic um, plants in there, milfoil and 
it's just beautiful. So tell me your vision. <laughs> yeah, so this project that we've got funding for is to fence off both the Wallandilly and McDonald's Creeks. Um, McDonald's Creek is a tributary into the Wallandilly River. As part of the fencing off, we're also getting funding for some alternate water sources. Uh, so we'll be putting trough and tank systems in and, and pulling water up to those. We've got some really good um, riparian vegetation here that we'd really like to protect. Um, some beautiful old trees, snowy gums and things that we're looking to fence off and also replant a lot of trees, especially along this ridge line here. We've got quite a steep ridge line. Um, I think it'd be great to get some trees back along here, manage some of the blackberry. The blackberry's got out a bit out of control in some areas, so manage that. But yeah, ultimately fencing off the river and the creek, putting in some permanent, I guess, crossings mm -hmm. so that we can still manage stock across the area, but obviously keeping them off the, the river and the creek. Uh, that's only going to help with reducing the erosion of riverbanks, mm. improving the quality of the water. But also the alternate water sources are going to allow us to manage our grazing better uh, so we can more intensely graze some of our paddocks a bit better. So when you look at your farm plan and you fence off an area like this, is it considered as a no-go area or is it considered as part of that holistic planning that it's providing enough benefits that it's okay it's not also providing grazing yeah we so we look at it that it's providing enough benefits in the longer term the areas that you can also uh, look at it as being potentially a little bit of as a, a bit as of a drought kind of yeah. store as well for, mm. for so we're not saying that we're not going to graze that area but certainly we're committing to um, not grazing it for a period of time while the yeah. the trees grow up to a stage that would then they would be able to be grazed. I think from history and from what we've seen is that mm. it is handy, especially in areas where it's not just trees, where we are going to have a bit of open grassland that we are fencing off, that it does actually benefit from grazing every now and then, mm -hmm. but it's certainly going to be um, well managed and not something that's going to happen for a period of time yet. Yeah, that's right. So it's that intermittent grazing um, does does seem to be beneficial. Yeah. The thing with cows, for those those people listening, is that they love water and they love nothing better to just stand as if it's a bath mm. and they do poo five times more in water. I don't know who did that research, but it's pretty gross. It would have been a really boring project. But anyway, they really enjoy hanging out in water. So getting them out and just letting them in occasionally is, is the way to go in terms of protecting the aquatic life in the ponds and in the pools that are formed up here. So what do you think this is going to look like? Like when you imagine, say, five years? Yeah, so in five years' time, obviously, uh, we're going to have some ad addition to the native grasses. Obviously, native grasses will come back without the pressure of grazing on them. Um, so we'll probably have an increase in the native grasses. I'm hoping that in terms of the aquatic life, there'll be um, more aquatic life that we'll see. I know there's certain pond weed and things that mm -hmm. is very exciting. I'm not great on all the terminology milfoil, about those, but that there you go, the the milfoil. Milfoil. Yep. <laughs> um, So I'm sure we'll start to see that. But then just in the broader landscape, we're going to see beautiful uh, trees coming through here. Uh, we're going to be planting 800 trees as part of this project. So mm. just to see the regeneration and, of uh, this riparian area will be really nice to see. So yeah, in five years' time, we're going to see some smaller 
plantings coming through. But over time, it's, it, it is, it's going to be a pretty nice place to hang out, to be honest. Oh, it's going to be a beautiful place to hang It's a nice place now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm seeing what you're seeing. I'm seeing the, the blackberries will start to get shaded out as well as, exactly. uh, with the weed control. But it'll just be a very special spot to come and sit because we know with uh, the climate variability that these riparian areas provide microclimates not just for heat but also for cold because yeah. it never gets quite as cold. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be absolutely gorgeous. So we'll make sure that we uh, keep taking photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've um, got Charlie who's yes, just turned one. I do. So what are your hopes for him with this property when he looks around, maybe when he's your age? What do you think it's oh. going to look like then? Oh, well, I mean, I hope that we will, we'll have done double the planting. So um, as well as obviously the bringing the different enterprises in, we're also very keen to continue planting trees. So when he's my age, I'm hoping that he's going to see lots of shade trees across the landscape, lots of amazing pastures that are with happy cattle and sheep in them, um, but a, a landscape that is working really well together. Mm. And you were saying something's really stuck with me um, about your multi-generational family doing things a little differently. What's it like running this enterprise as a strong, empowered female? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't really know because I don't know any different, yeah. I think. I've been really fortunate that uh, growing up, I've never been told that uh, I can't do something. So I think sometimes there's a misperception in agriculture that agriculture is a male game. Um, but I actually think that that isn't the case, certainly in this region. Mm. Um, agriculture is a family game. And w what I think tends to happen is the males, obviously, are the ones that are more visible because they're out in the paddocks. Mm. Um, but certainly females have always had a part to play in agriculture. What I think the exciting thing is, is that they're becoming more visible. They're taking on more roles. And so, therefore, you're starting to see see more of us um, be out more, more visibly. But for me, as I mentioned, this was my grandmother's property. My grand great-grandfather had three daughters and he gifted them all the property. So I had three very strong role, role models to learn from and I knew from them my grandmother was a wool classer when women weren't allowed in the shearing shed. So it's never been something that I've been told that I can't do. I think, you know, uh, being a female, you bring a different perspective perspective mm -hmm. to, to farming. You know, the way that you manage livestock might be a little bit different or the way that you make decisions may be a little bit different. But certainly for me, because I don't know any different, it, it kind of comes quite naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love hearing that because, um, yeah, we do tend to have this perception that it's a male-dominated field. Certainly in our work, we find that there's many, many women working um, and, yeah, becoming much more visible and recognised as such, which is really great. Well, Felicity, just before we finish, what I wanted to ask about was for someone with your business acumen and knowledge of broader business systems, not just agriculture, where can we see this, the quote-unquote family farm in the future? Like, how, why would you invest in a farm like this in the future? 
Well, I think family farms are a key to, I guess, the economy in terms of the amount of production and what they actually produce in terms of feeding feeding the world is massive. Obviously, you have seen a bit of a change towards bigger corporates, but I think family farms are always going to have a part to play in that. I think certainly within the banking industry, if we're looking at things like family farms and the way that they're managing them, I think there's a real... Uh, look towards how bankers can help and assist them better. They're also looking at ways, obviously with any business, climate change is a real issue for them as well. And so they're also looking at ways of how they can manage climate change. And one of those will be that they'll have different offerings to offer their their clients in terms of facilities. So it might be that, you know, if you're doing lots of restoration on your farm obviously the carbon side is a different thing carbon banking is is one side that's certainly coming to the fore at the moment but I think another one is more assessing your natural capital on your farm and I think natural capital is going to become a bigger I guess topic in the future of when we're assessing the assets on the farm we often assess the land as an asset but we actually don't assess our natural capital as an asset but it's quite a big asset on the farm and I think what's going to happen is that's going to become more important when looking at your overall profitability. Mm, I, I agree, I agree. I often talk about social capital as well, which are the networks of people and relationships, but certainly natural capital seems to be easier for people to really um, understand and appreciate. You know, many years ago it was always called ecosystem services and that just sort of fell a bit flat because people didn't really know what that meant. But certainly when you're sitting here, you can see incredible natural capital and may I say fabulous social capital. So uh, this region is very fortunate to have you out here uh, doing what you're doing. So thank you very much for talking to us today. For anyone listening who'd like to see some photos of this magnificent property, um, we will have that as part of our photo story. And if you want to know a bit more about Rivers of Carbon source water linkages, that's also on our webpage. So thank you again so much. We're going to take some photos now and we're also going to let Felicity Pat Sadie the Kelpie who's getting a little, um, well actually she's getting pretty lots of hugs there from Kate but (laughs) I think she wants one from Felicity too. So thanks everyone and we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye for now. Thank you.